Thank you for tuning in to the Critical Conversations podcast, brought to you by Mind the Frontline. Established in 2023 as a 501c3, Mind the Frontline is your ally in the journey to support those who selflessly safeguard our communities. Their core mission revolves around pioneering innovation and research, education, and overall well-being specifically tailored to healthcare, military, and public service frontline first responders. The Critical Conversation podcast is a dedicated space for police, fire, EMS, allied health workers, dispatchers, air medical, and military personnel, along with their families. Here, we dive into the heart of the matter, tackling essential topics such as mental health strategies, recovery methods, treatment options, the latest research, and professional development opportunities. Before we dive into today's episode on Critical Conversations, we do want to, however, acknowledge the nature of our discussions. Some of the content discussed may be triggering or intense as we explore the challenges and the triumphs within the first responder community. We recognize that these discussions may evoke strong emotions or memories. If you or someone you know is struggling and needs immediate support, we urge you to reach out to your agency's mental health resources or your local peer support group. In time of mental health crisis, you can always contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by phone or via text at 988 Please remember you are never alone and help is always available. At Mind the Frontline, we are more than just a podcast. We are a community committed to fostering resilience within the entire first responder family. So whether you're on the front lines or supporting those who are, we invite you to subscribe, engage, and be a part of this vital mission. To learn more, please visit us at www.mindthefrontline.org. Now let's dive into today's critical conversation. responders, listeners, and Mind the Frontline members, welcome back to the Critical Conversations podcast brought to you by Mind the Frontline. Today, I'm really honored to have a guest speaker who brings knowledge and experience to our ongoing mission of fostering resilience within the first responder community as we discuss the considerations for developing a peer support program. Our guest today is Dan Cohen with Williamson County EMS. Dan has been in journalism. He's been working with Williamson County EMS for over 19 years. He's worked on an ambulance for the last nine and a half years, and currently he's the clinical practices captain for William, Williamson County EMS. He creates CEs for first responders, and Dan's kind of niche is blending photography and paramedicine to tell the story of basically Williamson County EMS in Texas. Now he's working towards his master's degree of clinical mental health counseling and with the goal of providing services to first responders and other healthcare workers. You know, his experience in this field, his experience in EMS uh, and EMS in Texas, he's kind of been known as a pillar uh, around t- uh, Texas, if you've talked to any of the clinical educators that I know anyways in my circle. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much for joining us today on the Critical Conversations podcast. Hey, Chris, that is one heck of an introduction, and I am very honored to be here with you as well uh, to talk about uh, some very important subjects in uh, mental health and not only what we're trying to do in EMS, but uh, uh, how peer support is really changing people's uh, lives and ability to stay effective within jobs that they love to do. 
across uh, all different kinds of uh, of of workforces. Yeah, we're seeing so you know the growth of. Yeah, we're definitely seeing the growth of peer support, you know, within the public safety realms, whether you're uh, an EMS, if you're in fire, if you're working in a hospital or a facility, a police officer, dispatcher, all of that, you know, you're seeing the incidents and and more and more agencies kind of growing internal peer support. So it's really nice to have a discussion, you know, especially with someone I consider, you know, very knowledgeable in this subject, because this is something that, you know, while I've utilized peer support, you know, I have no really, you know, sound experience in, in actually creating a peer support program. So having an expert like you on the show is definitely, uh, you know, welcomed. And I really look forward to the discussion. Is there a reason, you know, when you submitted the peer support or the, the, the speaker registration that, you know, what drew you to kind of peer support in this topic? You know, why is it so passionate for you? I, I think that anyone who has worked in public safety for a long enough period of time has either struggled with their own mental health challenges or they have uh, friends and coworkers uh, who have struggled. And uh, I know too many people in emergency medical services, in our partner fire departments, and some of our law enforcement partners where those folks left uh, jobs that they loved at a time that was not of their choosing. And so uh, the thing that has always come up was uh, the fact that people just didn't feel like they could reach out for help. And uh, the value of peer support not just to us, but really anybody in any industry is the fact that uh, peer support can provide that bridge. Uh, it's as simple as uh, two trusted friends or coworkers being able to have a conversation that leads the person who is in distress to believe that if they reach out for help, they are not going to be stigmatized for doing so. Um, and Sometimes that is all that's needed to let people know that what they're experiencing is is uh, something that should not make them feel alone. That many of many of us, many of their peers, have been there before, and reaching out for help um, uh, with the assistance of peer support, I think, is something that's becoming uh, expected. And uh, I will tell you, I'm not an expert on peer support, although I appreciate the endorsement. Uh, I'm extremely, I'm a, I'm a major proponent of it. It's something that I've talked with a lot of people about. And, uh, and I will say I have seen peer support grow dramatically uh, in the same way that a decade ago, everybody decided that uh, community health uh, paramedicine and things of that nature were important for EMS departments, uh, I've seen peer support grow in a very uh, similar manner uh, over that same time as, unfortunately, suicides uh, and uh, distressful events have increased that a lot of our peers have been challenged to, to deal with, particularly with the onset of COVID. I like how you use the word, you know, breaking the stigma and really just two people having a, a, a really honest conversation, an open, vulnerable, transparent conversation, you know, because I'm seeing that more and more agencies, 
you know, whether fire, EMS, police, law enforcement, dispatching centers, you know, they're really taking root of understanding that these people are human. And I think we're really starting to understand that even as first responders, you know, we have feelings and emotions as well. And knowing what to do with those emotions, how to, you know, process some of those emotions and things like that can be very difficult, especially if you were never given the tools, resiliency training or any of the education, which I never received any in any of my 23 years of EMS experience. And so I think understanding the need, you know, why peer support programs matter in a high stress profession, such as first responders, public safety, you know, what are some of those, you know, needs that we see uh, with peer support, you know, and why does it matter so much? Sure. And maybe I can start by talking a little bit about uh, what makes first responders a little bit different. And uh, and it's something Absolutely. that I think we all gravitate toward this, toward this idea that uh, that what the public sees on TV is pretty, pretty darn far from what our actual jobs and experiences are. And maybe you can think about it this way. Imagine that you're uh, you're a barista at a at a large national chain of coffee shops, and one of your customers uh, tells you that you're an idiot and you shouldn't be working there because you got their order wrong. And now you're upset and you're depressed. Or maybe, uh, and you decide that you'd like to talk to their peer support in their organization, because frankly, peer support is kind of getting everywhere these days. Um, Let's say that you're, uh, let's say that you're in a law firm and uh, you deal with real estate law and you just lost a case and you find it depressing because you're, maybe you're not practicing the kind of law that you wanted to. And so now you're depressed or let's imagine that you're a, uh, you're a paramedic on an ambulance, and you run a call with a uh, uh, on a child with us with a life-threatening traumatic injury, and that child dies, and they just happen to be wearing the same T-shirt as your child that you dropped off at school just two hours before you showed up for your shift, and you kind of compare those things and think about them. Uh, everybody's worst day or or distress is kind of their own, but the distresses that uh, first responders are expected to take in stride, or at least when I started in this line of work almost 20 years ago, the suck it up buttercup uh, was was not a Williamson County EMS thing. That was really the expectation of us as first responders, that, that part of the yeah. job was managing that. And you tell a little joke about what you need to and you move on. And I think when we put ourselves in that category, we realize that not only are first responders at greater risk for anxiety and depression, just like the example of, you know, the the two very different uh, workforces I mentioned previously, but we're also at great risk for things like PTSD. And unfortunately, with PTSD, there's also a uh, a very strong correlation uh, with substance use disorders, and particularly for folks in the military, they found that that was alcohol. So, to the tune of nearly eighty percent in uh, in some research, PTSD comes along with alcoholism, and we can't necessarily extrapolate exactly uh, an eighty percent or an exact number for first responders. Uh, but when we look at PTSD numbers for first responders, 
they are pretty similar uh, to those in the military. Uh, lifetime rates are supposedly around 30 percent uh, for members of the military, and it's not much different for first responders in general. Uh, and that's approximately three times the rate amongst uh, members of the general public. And so those risks, those diagnoses, if you don't get some sort of help for that, you're not going to fare well. And peer support for so many people is, is the door, is, is the thing that, uh, that opens the door to some sort of higher level of, of care. And without peer support, it, it's kind of the equivalent of, say, we identify a, 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 a STEMI or a heart attack on a, on a 12-lead EKG, and then we just decide not to take them to a cardiac cath lab. We just we just skip take them to an urgent care. Um, <laughs> right? you take them to an urgent care, and that's and that's what uh, to me what peer support is is very much all about. It's about helping to direct the people we work with that we love, our work families, people we care about uh, that we work with, and getting them to the right care, just like we would for our patients. I think that's that's a great you know kind of analogy. I loved your barista versus the lawyer, um, and really kind of highlighting the difference of professions and industries at the same time. I do think uh, when it comes to first responders in our instance of our type of PTSD, traumatic PTSD, uh, and traumatic events, you know, it does differ from the general population. And in and, and history's past, you know, we've always kind of uh, treated PTSD, at least in the DSM five, you know it kind of applies to everybody. It's a blanket, you know, it's not just specific to first responders or the general public, but I wholly feel like the PTSD and what we go through and the traumatic experiences that we experience, you know, are significantly greater than, you know, the general public, your, your examples of a, you know, a barista getting berated, you know, uh, a lawyer, you know, losing his case, you know, those are stressful. They, you know, you know, bring in a lot of stress. But when you compare that to the paramedic who just dropped off his kid and two hours later is uh, dealing with a sentinel event with a uh, event that reminds him of his own child, you know, that really brings a lot of energy. And we also know that like, you know, a lot of first responders are empathic and, and we tend to own a lot of energy because we want to be of service. We want to make a difference. We mm -hmm. want to save a life. And when we're not able to do that, it, it really becomes uh, difficult sometimes to process that. So having the resources to reach out and talk um, absolutely helps from, you know, the post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSS, from transitioning over to a long-term, more debilitating PTSD. When you look at GEMS, you know, in a recent article that they published, you know, 37% of EMS providers reported symptoms uh, consistent with PTSD. So that's saying like, you know, one third of our workforce is actively, you know, in a long-term kind of mental health struggle right now. And we only see those numbers continuing to rise sometimes more drastically than others, especially in other industries. When you compare, you know, if I was to compare um, first responders and the instance of PTSD to say, you know, construction workers or, you know, office workers, you know, it, it is significantly different. I think it's important to understand those differences and the importance of having a peer support, not only in just in first responders, but yeah, you're right. We are seeing it grow in other, you know, industries at the same time. Mm 
So going back to kind of the original, I mean, why do we think these matter, you know, when it comes to first agencies? Why do you see more and more agencies really kind of starting to adapt this? Because I'm kind of like you, I'm, I'm not, uh, I've been an EMS for 23 years. You know, it hasn't kind of changed in 23 years. It's only kind of been in the last five that I've kind of seen mental health, peers, uh, peer support, resiliency training, really kind of starting to come to the forefront. So, you know, why are we kind of grasping onto this right now, which is great. I think it's needed more than ever. Uh, but what are you seeing? So I, I, I'll disagree with you just a little bit in that. And I appreciate your experience and your, your years in service, but we've, we've been really fortunate here in Williamson County. I, I wish that we had been doing some element of peer support for the 19 plus years that I've been here. Uh, but I first had the opportunity to speak on uh, peer support and what we were doing here. I believe it was seven or eight years ago at, uh, uh, at a conference, uh, at an EMS World Conference, I believe. And so I, I certainly wasn't the first person to to think of it or or to uh, or to do it within a within a department. Uh, it's something that that we recognize from our own internal uh, struggles and some of the the difficult things that we experienced here. Um, but I think that that over time there are things that that become more of a norm, right? I don't know too many decent sized EMS agencies, even a bunch of small ones that that don't have some sort of uh, community health paramedicine program or or medic program. Uh, you know, pretty much everybody uses a, an electronic PCR at this point. And I think that peer support, peer support is one of those things that doesn't necessarily, in its purest form, really require any money. And and that's really what, what we run up against so often uh, in EMS systems, particularly those that are volunteer or that, that struggle with uh, more limited budgets than, than a department like mine is blessed with. And so I, I, I'm hopeful that there are more departments that have them, peer support teams, than that don't have them. And from from what I've seen, the the concentration uh, in our in in the media, the just general public media talking about uh, uh, suicides and mental health issues within our profession, many of which were brought even more to light during COVID. Uh, I, I think that uh, our trade publications uh, about EMS and and uh, really having a good crossover conversation with uh, with other first responder uh, uh, partners that we have, fire departments, police departments, and with the military, uh, ha- I think have been really enlightening and have shown us that this is something that is not. It does take some organization. But it doesn't necessarily have to be um, costly, and it's certainly cheaper than uh, having. If you just want to look at it from a monetary standpoint, which is not humanistic yeah. in any way, but when when uh, governments uh, think about things, they're often thinking about it with a dollar sign. And uh, some administrators, not so much mine, but some in our industry, are forced to do that. Uh, it's. Uh, it's cheaper to hire people and ensure that they are healthy enough mentally and physically to continue to do a job that they've been trained to do at that agency as opposed to uh, 
uh, basically uh, run them over with your system and and then uh, pay and to lose train that resource. Them. Yeah, 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 we we are. We are resources that are finite. We are. Yeah, yeah we're finite resources. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and numbers from NREMT show that, you know, with the decline of EMTs and paramedics, you know, exiting the profession um, because mm -hmm. of a lot of mental health and, and, you know, all the stuff that comes with that, you know, stress, long hours, burnout, not being appreciated, underpaid. And so, you know, if we don't start taking care of and fostering, you know, peer support programs and providing these individuals with purpose and, and a way to really kind of, you know, extend their, you know, and, and let's talk about it in like a little bit of a business sense, you know, what's your customer lifetime value? Well, what's your employee's lifetime value? You know, you know, you could get, you know, a young EMS, I came in at 18 years old, you know, 20 years, you know, that would be something I would expect for someone that would come into public safety. You know, that's kind of what we strive to, you know, hitting our pension our 20 year benefits, you know, but we're seeing less and less that people are making that 20 year uh, mark. And, and I do think that the industry and uh, administrators are realizing that and it's a little bit, you know, little less costly if you just invest a little time and energy into a peer support program mm -hmm. versus actually losing that personnel. Um, and, and when we lose these people, they don't come back to EMS. They, they move on and go into another industry or another profession. And so you're right. We lose that finite resource. So in, in saying that, you know, what are some ideas as far as, you know, if I was an organization and, and say, I do not have this, but I'm looking into it, you know, what are some key components um, that you would identify to be successful for a peer support program, you know? Sure. I, I think that there's a number of things that, uh, that any agency would want to look at. And um, I, I think there are some, a few basic things that apply to everybody. And there are some things that are unique to different regions. So let's start with the things that I think are probably important for everyone. And I, I'm not going off of off of research for this. I'm going off of some of the experiences that we had and some things that I would imagine would be highly detrimental uh, to, to any peer support program. So first of all, uh, you need to have the support of the top end of your organization. If, if you don't have that, uh, then it's going to be problematic. And like we just talked about, we are a finite resource. Uh, I, I don't work in the field anymore, so I'm not so much a finite resource. But the people <laughs> <am> who, <laughs> but the people who do who do the real work out there in the field, they are the finite resource. And if we want to maintain them, we we have to care for them. So I think that's really the the thing for administrators that that can help get them on board if they have doubts. Um, aside from that, you need to have an administration that is willing to provide a level of autonomy for a peer support team. They need to be, uh, within a certain set of parameters, allowed to function, kind of like uh, uh, our, our field medics are functioning with standards of care in the field. Um, they need to have... Uh, a group of people who are uh, chosen for their ability to communicate with others, uh, the way in which they care for others, and maybe more important than anything else, the ability to keep their mouth shut. So 
you, it's it's kind of like you one of those key like, points right there is is, is you know and an anonymity right like trying to make sure that we're yeah. not getting the story out we have to remain confidentiality i think for any peer support mm -hmm. program um, to be successful has to be at the first and foremost right behind administrative support you're right because if you don't sure. get buy-in from up top it's going to be an uphill battle sure and and there's of course a couple of caveats uh you know if somebody is is uh actively uh going to hurt themselves or somebody else uh, you know they're they're going to endanger a patient you know there are there are certain things where secrecy goes out at, at least some secrecy goes out the window where somebody has to to be informed but that's something that that we make clear to the members of our peer support team uh, as well as uh, the uh, folks who have signed up to receive peer support contact. And of course, that's optional. And that brings me to another point. Peer support needs to be optional. It's something that all of our employees can opt into or out of at any time. Um, and so uh, and why is that, Dan? Important. That's a very important topic, I think, to kind of uh, kind of break down a little bit. You know, why why do you – and I think it's a great idea, so I'm not disagreeing by any means. But for our listeners and viewers, can you kind of break down why it's important that this is an opt-in program and not forced? Sure. Um, it, it's uh, it's one thing to, uh, to be told, hey, you, you need help. Um, and not really be a person who is interested in responding to the type of assistance that's being offered. Um, we don't ever want peer support to be a nuisance for somebody. Uh, I see peer support more as a as a, an open door that somebody you know will hold out a hand, and someone can take that hand. But if that's something they don't want a checkup on a regular basis after a certain type of call. Um, then, then that's their business. They don't have to reach out and get that hand. Additionally, we're not um, our peer support team is not really in an administrative chain in terms of of having to respond from someone in the field and then discuss that with someone in admin. In fact, that would be that'd be a no no, right? So, agreed. Uh, we we're not we don't ever want to be in that realm of of having to be in a uh, having to be in a chain of command where someone might be, say, punished for not accepting assistance. That that would really kind of uh, uh, take a lot of the value and tr potential trust away from people in the field who might uh, who might really need to talk to somebody the most, yet feel uh, uh, at most risk of stigma from having that. Uh, become an exhibit A for uh, an administrator to see. Even if you do have a great admin and 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 people are generally getting along from field to admin, which thankfully right now we're having that experience. Um, That's always good. But, That's a positive know, organization culture. It hasn't. It hasn't always been that way. We've had good times and hard times in 19 years, but that's a really important thing to keep those things separate and keep people accessing peer support when and if they want to. And when you think about stages of change that, that people are in, if people, I think people who are receptive to peer support are, they are in some 
stage where they are ready to accept some new information. And there are others who aren't. And if they aren't, then then uh, that's not necessarily something that we should try to bring them to kicking and screaming. I agree. You know, it, it's kind of like you can lead a horse to wire, but I can't force the horse to drink. You know, you, you want to yeah. make it a resource, make sure it's known, make sure all the employees know that this is a safe space and confidentiality is key because I think trust and obviously the fear of repercussions. I mean, that's always at the forefront of a lot of individuals' minds when they think about peer support. You know, it's like, uh, am I going to get in trouble? Um, is there any fear to this? You know, uh, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to get suspended? You know, is admin going to find out? So I think you hit on a lot of good right. key points for some of those frameworks. Anything else you'd want to add as far as, you know, these are key components versus uh, these are more regional components? Sure. Um, some other key components that I think are valuable uh, is to have a and again, this is just on the internal side of things to have a uh, a series of call types or issues that will auto generate uh, a need to contact somebody. So, uh, for example, in my department, we have a list of uh, of call types like uh, uh, a death in the field, uh, a serious traumatic injury to a child, sexual assault. Um, uh, uh, serious violence or murder, um, those those types of things. The 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 death of someone or serious injury of someone that you work with, or 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 uh, could be a law enforcement official, somebody that you work with in the field and relate to. Uh, any of any of those call type examples will generate a uh, a request to the peer support team. And someone will see the crew members that were involved and and will volunteer to respond based on their availability or perhaps their uh, the initial rapport that they might have with members of that crew. And uh, I think that's that's an important thing when we think about not just the the issue with one call as as one traumatic event, but in terms of try, giving people the opportunity to interrupt that death from a thousand cuts where they have yeah. the opportunity to go, you know what? It wasn't this one thing. It's just, it's all this. It's, it's the, the culmination of all these things. And I think that, that that is something that gets as many of our folks uh, in this profession, if not more than a singular traumatic event. And yeah, so the death I by a thousand important. cuts, I can definitely relate to in my own struggles. So, and it's nice because it gives you multiple opportunities to kind of make a touch. And I do think it's important to have triggers, you know, that trigger, once again, you have a foundation, you have, you know, key components, but when do you react? And so I, I like how you guys have kind of outlined that. That's really cool. Yeah. So some of, some of what I mentioned before were really about uh, internal things in building a peer support program, some of the things that we've done and tried. Uh, there are some external things that are equally important. Uh, the first and foremost, I would say, is to have a, re a bank of resources that is set up and ready to go. And in some places, that might be uh, something that gets pieced together based on what's there. Uh, in a rural area, you may have a different situation from, from ours. We're 
Williamson County is one county north of of uh, Travis County, which is where Austin, Texas is. So the, there's there's a half a million plus people in this county and a whole lot more in the next one down. <laughs> so we have a lot of resources. Um, and we we use uh, Tanya Glenn and and associates and i believe you you mentioned that you had had visited with her on a on a separate podcast but her organization specializes in working with first responders and and folks in the military so her organization actually provides the equivalent of uh explain this in in medic ease would would be to say that that she's kind of like our medical director for peer support uh, if you want to think about it that way. So whenever these, for example, when a notification comes up that says medic so-and-so and their crew members saw this, uh, saw this uh, homicide that they dealt with, um, Tanya or a member of her team sees all of those things. If there's any communication or any issue that requires her or her folks to be more present, then they see that. And that's something that that they can accommodate. So they're they're always kind of over our shoulder in a really good way. Uh, additionally, they are there to help provide us with uh, education uh, for for our uh, peer support team. And I would say to people who don't necessarily have a a Tanya Glenn and Associates, um, reach out to the uh, to the mental, you know, if there's a local mental health authority in their area, in their county, uh, you know, in the corner of the state where they happen to, to reside, to reach out to them, uh, establish those partnerships. Because a lot of those local mental health authorities, they run on grants, and you never know what they've got grants to spend money on. It might be education for your peer support team or some kind of uh, some sort of way to help you uh, do that. And then the last thing I'd say in terms of external support is to um, is is to look at some of the technology that is out there, and we haven't implemented this, but we're looking at some different options for applications that would tie into either our EPCR, our reporting system, uh, and or our CAD system, which would allow some of those things to automate a little bit. Uh, we definitely yeah. would not want to automate the conversations that we have with people. I don't think AI peer support is going to be a good thing. Uh, it scares the hell out of me, actually. And it's not it just does. the gray hair talking. I've, yeah. I've seen some of those already pop up as far as, you know, AI, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. peer support chatbots and things like that. And, and it does. It kind of does scare uh -huh. me when it comes to that. But I, I do think it's important to establish early relationships with whatever those providers are and resources within mm -hmm. your city, your agency, your, your responding, you know, um, you know, district. Because when it happens, you know, you want to have and be prepared and, and have those established mm -hmm. relationships, you know, so, you know, maybe they don't have access to the Tanya Glenn and associates of the world, you know, maybe they're in a little small mm -hmm. town in Southern Arizona, but you know, there are resources that you can find that maybe within your own community, but also, you know, don't weigh out remote, you know, uh, for example, you know, I used to work at a small department called Rio Rico down, you know, South of Tucson, Probably not hmm. going to have any good resources. However, Tucson is only an hour away, and there are resources up there. And you know, there's always the ability to remote. So I never want to shut the remote possibility down. It's more or less just establishing, you know, those 
those processes and, and establishing those relationships ahead of time. So when it happens and, and you need to lean on it, you know, there's, there's a process in place and a foundation in place. Well, I want to, I want to mention something that you honed in on there, which is, which is remote. And I want to separate that from AI. It's obviously those two things are, are, are different because, because of COVID, uh, the, the growth of mental health care, in fact, some, many modes of health care has expanded dramatically into, uh, into the streaming world of things. And there's a fair amount of research out there already that's indicative of, uh, particularly with uh, counseling, where mm-hmm. uh, having doing it via telehealth is not necessarily any different in terms of, of efficacy over time. Um, and I, I can speak from personal experience. My, uh, my wife and I did some, did some marriage count of remote, you know, we did that via telehealth because that was the option. Uh, we had begun that just prior to COVID, but we continued it during COVID. And, uh, I, I gotta say it was hugely beneficial, but the research that's out there is really saying the same thing. And part of the counseling program that, that I'm learning from, uh, definitely is uh, is espousing that that same aspect. So for for those of us who are really concerned about a stigma for what we're doing, having that option to not even have to leave our home, you know, mm-hmm. that you know, if you're worried that oh my God, somebody might see me and think something about me in my community or have a certain thought, I would hope that those are things that no one would put that on your shoulders as someone needing help. But that's where our minds go sometimes when they do. when we're not our when we're not ourselves when we we're not <clears throat> when we're not okay, and so and that, having that as as an option is immense. And when you talk about rural uh, fire districts or EMS services, uh, rural law enforcement agencies, all of that I think becomes that much more valuable. I. Couldn't say that any better, Dan. Um, I personally have used, and I still do use, you know, remote counseling services because sometimes I'm busy. Sometimes I just can't get there. And I think you hit on a good point because a lot of people, um, you know, I know other agencies and other departments, you know, they do have like a, maybe a, a localized peer support, you know, resource or their own, you know, peer support thing. And there is the stigma and the fear. Once again, our, our minds go to just weird places sometimes and they start imagining things like, Oh, well, if I go here and someone sees me, they're going to think that I'm, I have a problem and and I don't want the world to know that I have a problem. Um, and so, Mm -hmm. yes, I think when you talk about remote, you know, resources, those are invaluable more now more than ever. And and it's really good to see that, that the studies have shown that whether you're in person or doing this remote, you know, the efficacy of the treatment is the same. And so I think people need to grasp onto that. So, you know, having a, a hybrid model even um, could be a very beneficial for your peer support program. So they have the option of, hey, do you mm-hmm. want to do this remote or do you want to do this in person? Because some people do want to do it in person, you know, and some people just like, hey, Maybe for the first couple of times, we just do this remote and I can kind of maybe see how it is. And, and they warm up to, you know, it's like kind of like dipping your toe in that nice warm water or hopefully it's not cold. Um, but you want to get used to it before they jump all the way in. And sometimes, you know, individuals just need that buy-in to let the program and the process and the time work itself out. So I love that. Now, 
And whether but, you're ta- and whether you're talking about peer support or counseling, um, pr- pretty much uh, with with counseling, the thing, and this may not come as a surprise, but there are probably twenty different counseling theories that are pretty commonly used by counselors with their clients. But there's over four hundred counseling theories out there, some of which are probably total nonsense, and some are probably great. Um, but the reality is the biggest single thing that impacts success is the rapport between the counselor and the client. And admittedly, peer support people are not counselors. However, they are entering into a role where there is a pen- potential for uh, definitely a layperson's discussion that borders on helping to get people towards some good advice if if that's what they need or just to listen and not advise at all but that's, that's a good the, bridge. the rapport that's a good bridge. The, yeah the, the rapport factor is exactly the same and that and I think that's really the 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 value it's the fact that you're talking with another human that's actually empathetic uh towards whatever it is that you're struggling with I like that. And it kind of goes to the next topic I want to kind of bring up, you know, is called, you know, kind of breaking the stigma, you know, when we have, or if there are individuals out there, um, whether they're on the front line, they're administrators, or they have a peer support program, or they don't have a peer support program, you know, how, how do we foster a culture of mental health support in first responder communities? You know, how do we continue uh, to push this so we can let others know that it, this is okay. It's becoming the norm, right? It's just like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I have to go in for an annual physical, you know, be, if I get injured, I have to go follow up, you know, you know, we get injured in our brain. It's a, it's a silent injury sometimes. We don't necessarily see that. And so, you know, mm-hmm. but, but stigma from a lot of people that I talk to is, is a big barrier for them seeking help, seeking, you know, the resources because they don't want to have that stigma kind of pushed on them. Sure. So a lot of what uh, Dr. Glenn, Tanya has shared with her education of our our peer support team and a lot of the, the materials that she creates are all about the stigma of getting help and reducing that. And uh, and that's really what uh, what peer support is uh, is all about. So moving into the next part and and this kind of next topic, it's really just kind of looking at, you know, breaking down the stigmas. You know, we know that a lot of people are fearful. We know that, you know, they, that's the first thing that comes to their mind, you know, when they start thinking like, okay, I feel like I might be off and I might need help. Usually for me anyways, early on, the next thought was, okay, well, I have a fear of talking to my peer support group or talking to my department or talking to anybody because I don't want to get labeled. I don't want to, you know, and it's not even just being labeled, but it's just the, the fear of everything else. Like, like we already talked about, you know, a fear of someone else discovering that I went into the peer support group or I went into the peer support mm-hmm. resource for my department and they saw me. Um, what does the community think about me? What does my fellow coworker thinking about me, these stigmas can be very uh, pervasive in high stress professions. And, you know, so I guess I'm asking, how can we as first responders or how can we, you know, really foster a culture that supports the mental health support and and really supports that it's okay to get peer support and and activate it and reach out and, you know, should it speak to you? Interestingly, I think that the the biggest thing that is occurring outside of folks like 
Dr. Tanya Glenn, who a lot of their materials is all about talking about that stigma. And if we talk about it and stories about people like us who have reached out for assistance, that that will reduce the stigma over time. I think that's uh, extremely helpful. But there is one massive change that has been going on uh, for you know my 19 years in this profession. And that's the fact that uh, I'm getting grayer and they're younger. And as people come into this department, the younger people who come in here, for the most part, seem to have very different expectations for themselves in terms of their level of happiness, what job satisfaction means to them. Um, And so I have found a great many of them to be a lot more open to discussing mental health. The many of them will bring up those questions first. Um, I I know um, there's somebody that I've been sorry about that. There's somebody that I have been a mentor to who as who runs a certain kind of call, and then will ask me, "Hey, is it normal for me to feel like this?" Or, or to be thinking about this certain thing about this call. That was not a discussion that anybody I knew had 15, 20 years ago. I'll, it just wasn't you. a discussion. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't a thing. And now it's a thing. So the fact that so many of these younger uh, EMTs, AEMTs, paramedics are willing to let that cat out of the bag first they're bringing be transparent, it to our be vulnerable. Yeah. Generational, oh, yeah. I think. I think it's you know, generational changes, right? We're seeing mm-hmm. these younger people coming in because they have an expectation of good work-life balance, not being stressed, and these mm-hmm. are just things that we're seeing change in in our culture overall. And it's forcing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, first responders and public safety agencies across the board to adapt to that because. You are. You're you're having a change of kind of guard, so to speak. And I think it's these new kind of modern leaders that I kind of speak to that, you know, you're a gray hair, but Dan, you know, you're setting an example for those that are following you. And these younger generations are more apt and more open to it. So I do think we are going to see the progression and and the breaking down of the stigma uh, kind of accelerate over the next couple of years. I really do because you're, we're moving people out that kind of are rooted in tradition and not change and not flexible. But we're also seeing a new younger generation that is coming in and they are holding their administration and leadership accountable or they're leaving. And so it's yeah. either the leadership needs to adapt to it or, or they're, you know, I'm sorry, you're a business, right? So if you don't have your finite resources, you can't do your function. You can't create revenue. So you do need to think about it as, as a business decision of, okay, if I don't change, if I don't adapt to the changing environment of, you know, public health and and mental health and public safety, you know, you're going to get left by the wayside. You're going to have trouble finding people to hire your, your uh, turnover rate is going to be extremely, extremely high. And, and that is going to affect your bottom line and your viability as an agency. And, and we're not, and EMS is not unique in that. Um, the, the things that uh, so many companies out there are doing right now to retain, particularly their younger workers, seems rather extraordinary uh, to some of us. But uh, like we talked about earlier, it can cost a heck of a lot more 
to lose that person that you've trained, have to rehire somebody and get their buy-in on what it is that your your organization does. So it is it is incredibly important that uh, that we uh, are open to that. And 19 years ago, we would have told stories about, you know, hey, I ran this call and this is how it was to sort of see what the new person's reaction might be to that to maybe kind of gauge how Shock they and would all. deal with yeah how they would deal with something and and maybe uh perhaps some people would judge them based on what their reaction was would they be able to handle things when they got really uh difficult mentally and uh and nowadays we don't do that we we give them scenarios so that they're prepared for it but we discuss Hey, we're just going to tell you when you run this kind of call, you may feel like this, but that's, that's normal. normal. And then we're going to, and we're going to talk about what that means to your sympathetic nervous system and to your ability to sleep and the things that you need to do to be resilient. I love that. And then when you do look at other industries, you know, Google, tech, you know, things like that, they are doing extraordinary things that I think people within our, our industry would be like, they would be totally taken aback, but man, they really do invest. You know, they think about, um, you know, just the, the environment, you know, from thinking about, you know, for more progressive agencies, how they set up their stations, right. Making sure that they're fostering, you know, a collective, you know, culture that is, you know, it has nice lighting. It's, it's nice to be there. It, you know, brings down the stress levels and things like that. So we are seeing, outside industries, you know, and hopefully some spillover because we can learn from other industries. And I think we should, because what works for them, you know, if it, if it helps us by all means, we need to borrow it, especially now more than ever. So we can get these suicide rates down. And not only that, you know, we are, we need to start bolstering our finite resources because public health is, is only going to continue to grow and the need and the demand on the public health and EMS and public safety resources is going to continue to grow. And so we need to make sure that we have these resources. And once we invest in them, you know, that we don't lose them within five years, you know, that we're going to be able to utilize these resources within our communities for 10, 15, 20 plus years and see them through the retirement. You know, you're not seeing so many people go full send anymore to hit their 20 or their, you know, in some cases 30 uh, uh, for some areas. So uh, I think it's really good to see that we're, we're, we're adapting, which is great because that's exactly what we need to do. Um, when it comes to, you know, the training and preparedness for peer support, you know, what do we need to do to equip our peer supporters on the front lines of mental health? You know, is there any required training, any specific standards? Mm-hmm. You know, what is the training that goes into a peer supporter, so to speak, an individual? Sure. And uh, again, I think that it's some things are probably valuable for anybody who wants to assist their their peers with mental health issues and resilience. Um, and there are also some things that are specific to your agency, your your specific location. Uh, in in our uh, peer support environment, uh, <clears throat> like I said, we we have Tanya Glenn and her agency who has been able to come in and provide specialized education. Uh, that they provide to all of the agencies that they provide peer support supervision for. So they kind of have a, a, a rolled out plan of, of what that looks like. And for them, that includes a description 
of uh, of how stress uh, works, how stress and trauma works on our on our brain, on our uh, nervous system, and uh, and some of the diagnoses that come along with that. Uh, some of the stigmas involved, the the uh, some of the workable treatments for people, and uh, and so I think that that's things that kind of cover those aspects of of explaining the background of why people feel like they do when they encounter these traumatic events and they're not ready or able to process them. It's important for us to know that, and especially in uh, as EMS people, we can have that conversation about uh, the sympathetic nervous system and and the adrenal cortex and and all of those things and present it in a way to them that is very logical and and for most medics should have a basis of understanding of that and that that really roots it in something that is is less about hey I'm special I'm the only one who's ever felt this way I must be crazy to Oh my gosh, I'm experiencing what most people might experience in this situation. So uh, I think that level of education is important. I think another thing that uh, has been really good for us that we've done, uh, we have uh, provided mental health uh, first aid education for all of our uh, peer support uh, providers. And uh, mental health first aid along with psychological first aid there are kind of some different versions of it floating around but uh but the gist of it is all kind of the same it's it's how do we how do we help our peers when they are are suffering with a mental health issue so it's it's really pretty ideal how do we triage things how do we decide uh not only how to we might communicate with this person but how to get them to help and what's the right kind of help. And, uh, and so having those trainings is, uh, ha- has been really good for us. And then one thing that we're going to do for our entire staff in this, uh, in the coming months, which we have never done is, uh, we've had an offer from our local mental health authority to provide mental health first aid training for our entire field staff which is really amazing. I I don't know that there's, I've never heard of an EMS agency training all of their staff on mental health first aid. Um, So I don't have any data on who's doing it and who isn't. I just know I've never heard of anybody doing it. Um, And I think that that will provide not only, well, I'm I'm glad to hear that uh, because it will provide not only a basis to assist their peers and recognize things, but it will also help them with uh, the behavioral health calls that they run and help uh, uh, help to communicate better and maybe understand some of their patients uh, a, a little bit better. So I'm really excited. I think that's that great. That's something we're doing. Yeah. I think that is great. And I think it's very, very sorely needed. And it's great to see that you guys are doing this. Um, <clears throat> one of my good friends, Alexander Jeber from Emergency Resilience, you know, she has an emergency mm-hmm. resilience course. And I know a lot of the agencies, mm-hmm. um, when I owned IA Med, you know, that they were part of our agency solutions. They all got that course and it was phenomenal. You know, it definitely um, yeah. allows individuals to, A, and I like how you put that, you know, we get to better relate to those patients because I can recall so many patients that I've taken with behavioral health and mental health issues that I just didn't understand. I was just simply like, you know, 
why are you like this? You know, and, and I just didn't have that understanding, you know, and now I'm able to have a little bit more understanding, be a little bit more empathetic. It really has changed my clinical practice and how I approach and even initiate those, those first initial steps with a patient like that, because I have the training and understanding. If you don't have the tools and you don't know how to use the tools, you know, there's, there's, you can't be successful in building something, you know? And so I think arming your staff with those tools for all the frontline staff is a phenomenal idea. And I do think more and more of this needs to spill throughout our industry. I would even go so far as to, you know, ask the NREMT and, and the National Association of EMS Educators to look at, you know, and things like this in initial EMS education and making it a requirement to maintain that. Just like I have to have so many hours of airway and so many hours of operation, I should have so many hours required by these national bodies every time I go to recertify for mental health and wellness. Because once again, it's not just one thing that's going to save this. It's it's taking a multi-pronged approach. But I do like that how you guys have been proactive and are rolling this out to your staff because I speaking at least from my experience, you know, once I was armed with that education and those tools and resources, it made it easier for me to identify that in my other staff. And it made it easier for me to open up those lines of communication with someone else who might be struggling. Because up until then, I didn't have those resources. I didn't have those tools. I didn't know what signs to look at. I didn't even know how to take care of myself, let alone try to you know, manage or, or look out for signs and symptoms of other people. And so I really love that you guys are doing that with the, your, your training and preparedness objectives. Um, when you talk about the training uh, and preparedness and, and implementing a peer support program, Dan, you know, what are some challenges that you think are, are more common for individuals or agencies to run into? Because I always like to share, you know, yes, this is how a perfect, you know, peer support program works, but we all know that there's going to be challenges along the way. What are some challenges you think, um, one from the agency side and another from the individual side? Sure. Um, from the agency side, I, I think perhaps uh, the biggest potential issue could be uh, leadership at the agency not really understanding what the purpose of peer support is and maybe not having a, a, a due regard for uh, the exceptional need for that wall between peer support and administration. Uh, I think that that, that would be a, a significant uh, risk. Uh, luckily, that's not one that we've faced here. Uh, I, I've never had a challenge from anyone above my rank asking me, or of equal rank asking me, if uh, asking me questions related to somebody's uh, uh, whether or not somebody'd had peer support or anything like that. It's just it's uh, it's just something that's that's uh, not discussed. Every once in a while, they might ask to, and say, "Hey." would you mind reaching out to so-and-so, but what might happen after that, that's, there is nothing, you know, Hey, do you mind? I was a little worried about so-and-so would, would one of y'all mind reaching out to them? That's happened uh, a number of times, but of course we, we're not going to tell that administrator anything about it. (laughs) Yeah. There's no follow-up, but it's really good to see that, you know, higher up leadership is, is, is a, they're, they're obviously they're being, you know, being present because they're they're checking in and being aware of what's going on with their their employees, which is always a good sign of good leadership and good organizational culture. And so I do 
love that. Was it something for the administration, you know, when you really started to latch on and grasp onto the peer support idea and really foster it within and grow it within Williamson County EMS? Was it something that that just came to them? Was it something that they sought out? You know, how did that discussion or that seed get planted? Because obviously for our listeners out here, they might want to plant their seed or this seed in their own leadership. So I think one of the first things that you and I talked about uh, in this podcast was uh, the reason that we started peer support in the first place and why I was interested in it. Um, And that really came down to those people that we worked with and cared about who left left the uh, profession at a time that was not of their choosing. And that's that's all that I'll say. But but uh, luckily, none of those uh, people, uh, none of those people died, um, but they really needed help. And they didn't have any sort of uh, anybody to open that door and kind of hold their hand and get them to that assistance. Um, and to not even have that as an option, whether they would have participated or accepted that, we don't know. But it wasn't part of our culture. And, and if you don't have it as part of your, your stated culture of who you want to be as an organization and the members within it, uh, then it's something that will just receive lip service. And so the departure of those folks uh, brought really was what, what helped to motivate us. And you mentioned the word perfect system, and ours uh, certainly isn't that. Um, but you, we were talking about things that would be really tough for a peer support group, and that's uh, the fact that peer support groups should not hold themselves uh, responsible when something bad happens, because unfortunately it does. We, we, had, uh, we had a suicide in our department. Uh, a few years back, um, and and it was something that shocked all of us, as suicides frequently do, um, and uh, that was something that I think if you got hung up on and thought, oh my gosh, this is something that we should have prevented um, and we couldn't prevent it, and therefore we're not an important thing. Or entity, I think that that's that's a risk because, uh, like as paramedics, we all know there are people we're not going to save. Uh, there are people that you know nobody's going to die in the back of my ambulance is nonsense because every once in a while somebody's going to die in the back of your ambulance, and that's something that as peer support people, it's a lot harder to uh, to come around to that when it's your coworkers, your friends. Uh, people you've run calls with and shared good times and bad, that can be a tough one. So finding ways to process that is really important because you're not going to be so you're not going to be able to help everyone either get to help or get help that gets them gets them through. So that can be a difficult thing. I think that was a very important point, um, Dan. I'm really glad that you shared that because, you know, I struggled with that early on when I really started kind of, uh, you know, kind of going down my pathway of really kind of 
supporting mental health and kind of becoming some of somewhat of an advocate for mental health and uh, first responders you know i would have people reach out all the time and you know it's still a couple of calls that still stick with me where you know despite my best efforts and what i tried to do um that individual succumbed uh to their disease and their uh their bad times and it's it really is unfortunate and that is something that i uh, have worked through um, with my counselor, um, but having to understand that you know it's not—I can't own that. I can't—I can't take that on. It's not on me. It's not on the peer support team. You know, inevitably things are not going to go the way that we plan. A good plan is just that. It's, it's a plan. You know, we we know that as peer support members that we try to support, we try to guide. I try to provide resources and say, hey, and share my own experience, so that way, hopefully. Uh, uh, provide some sort of trust and, and we can build that. But at the same time, ultimately it is that individual's decision whether they want to get help or, or not. And we're not going to mm-hmm. save everybody. You know, early on that was definitely my mentality, Dan. Nobody dies in the back of my aircraft. Nobody dies in the back of my ambulance. Uh nobody dies inside the house fire. That is all just machismo and ego that ends up kind of uh, sabotaging us down the road. So I like how you kind of put that as, you know, there are going to be, you know, bad outcomes to peer support, you know, instances, and it's not the peer support team. It's not the peer support program. It just, it it's what it is. You know, it's just like when we say, you know, feeling uh, emotions after a traumatic event is normal. Unfortunately, that is normal. It's part of life. It's part of the statistics. You know, we, what we can do is strive to get that number as high as we can as far as those we can impact. Uh, but we're not going to get to 100%. That is an unrealistic number. So as long as we are trying our best, we strive for progress, but perfection will always elude us, I think, uh, at least in this realm. And, and that's normal. That's come to be expected. When it comes to peer support programs, you know, I really want to hit on one last topic before we wrap up today's show. It's been such an insightful, you know, with some good points that you've made. I really want to hit on inclusivity and diversity, you know, ensuring accessibility and support for all first responders. How uh, does inclusivity and diversity play, a, you know, a role? Is it key? Is it not key? Is it something that we need to be considering as we, you know, establish a peer support program, because I know that all, all first responders experience mental health challenges at the same time, like we mentioned, you know, and um, some of them are tailored for their agencies, which you've also kind of brought up, you know, we have key factors and key parts of the framework, but we also have, you know, regional or things that might be department or agency specific. But for you, what have you seen as far as inclusivity, diversity, and its importance in a peer support program? So um, our peer support team here is uh, somewhat limited by the number of people who are interested in performing in that role. Uh, To my knowledge, we have encouraged certain people who looked like uh, they were doing an amazing job of assisting their peers and communicating with them, even though they weren't on the peer support team. And those were folks that... um, that I think we we leaned on and said, hey, we would that this would be a, a good place for you to to assist your your peers. Um, I am as as much of a member as I am of our peer support team. I'm a captain in my department, and in my department, large teams are led by commanders. And uh, in terms of choosing those people through through a process, our 
commander, uh, Thomas Watson, is responsible for that. And the impression that I have so far of the peer support team members that we've that we've had over the years is that he's done quite a good job with that, and I'm I'm very pleased with that. We do have a much more uh, diverse work group here at Williamson County EMS than we did when I started 19 years ago, which I think is a is a credit to uh, our educational institutions in the area. We've also made that uh, an important aspect of their recruiting. Um, but I cannot say that our uh, our team is diverse. I can speak to uh, the importance of, uh, of diversity when it comes to counseling, because that's my current area of study. And it is, it is massively important for the same reason that I, I think that our paramedics would rather talk to uh, a group that specializes, a group of counselors that specializes in dealing with people just like us, and and I think that uh, it's it can be easier to establish rapport with people who who look like you or perhaps share the same uh, faith values uh, or or whatever it is, the same occupation, and so having that, if you're able to, I think that there's uh, that there can be extraordinary benefit to that. I know it's proven in counseling, uh, and certainly the awareness of it is uh, a multicultural awareness is an essential tenet of of learning uh, to become a counselor in in, in this day and age. Uh, however, the size of our department, I think, limits um, uh, how much of that we can. Uh, uh, that we can insist on. However, I think it's something that we could uh, certainly uh, work towards more of in the future and having a more diverse group of folks in our peer support team. Can't hurt. And, and that might very well be extremely it, it, helpful. Yeah, it can, it can never hurt. And, and you are obviously always limited by your workforce, you know, but I do think, you know, from what I've heard, you know, from what you've described, you know, Williamson County EMS has a very inclusive peer support program, meaning that, you know, hey, anybody can activate it if they so choose. And so having yes. that and fostering an environment like that, showing that, you know, hey, everybody is the same. Everybody is human. Everybody can feel emotions and it's okay. We all process these things differently. So, you know, hey, if you need, uh, you know, guidance or support in, in navigating these emotions or these feelings or intrusive thoughts, whatever it may be, you know, you're, you're open. The department's open to it. There's no repercussions, which I think is extremely, extremely important as we, you know, have talked about organizational mm-hmm. culture. So I, I really love all of the thoughts and just the ideas that you shared and just your own experiences and kind of what you and Williamson County have done and, and grown with. And I think it hopefully can give some of our uh, listeners and viewers um, some guidance as they look to either take advantage of their own peer support, um, maybe look at elevating themselves into that role. Like you mentioned, you know, you typically find these people that are kind of a more caring, they're kind of, you know, the, you know, the station mom or dad, however you want to kind of look at that. I kind of call them silent leaders because that's really what they are. They're silent leaders, silent mentors. Um, but fostering that growth and identifying that and then giving them the opportunity, I think is extremely, extremely important. Um, Dan, do you have any important top or uh, key points that you want to kind of leave our viewers with as we kind of wrap up the show today? Sure. Uh, I, I would say that uh, for those folks who 
do not have some sort of peer support team, uh, that it's something that should be absolutely essential. Uh, do you carry a trauma bag on your ambulance? You should probably have a peer support team too. Um, and again, what that peer support team depends on, what that's comprised of depends on your resources, your area. Uh, but really, all that you need to start it is to have one person in your department who can communicate well with their peers, um, can can hold on to information that they know is very personal and very private, um, and uh, and to have some sense of connection to the outside world and what's available uh, to those folks for assistance, and and those people should take the mantle in their department and make this something that um, uh, that can come to fruition because there are lots of people doing it. There, there are plenty of templates of how to do it. And like we talked about at the outset, it's something that's free. It just takes people who care. And if you're on an ambulance or you work in a fire department or, you know, you're a police officer, we already know that you care about people. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing the job. And chances are you care just as much or more about your, your peers. And so this is <clears throat> this is truly something that we, we should all have in our organizations. Uh, and then I would maybe uh, maybe ask your listeners to consider something. I, I'm eligible to retire in less than two years. And... Um, I'm looking forward to having a different career when I retire from here as a counselor. And I will say that if you are fortunate enough to have have a completed a bachelor's degree and you're interested in mental health and providing a service to your peers, we're going to need a heck of a lot of people who are going to be willing to do this kind of work. And who better to do that work? Than, than our peers, the people that we that we see every day, our partners in uniform, our families in uniform. We should be the ones who are who are able to take care of ourselves. But to do so really requires a little extra education, and and I will say it sometimes it feels like a heck of a lot of extra education. <laughs> but uh, I have I have four semesters well, worry, left. Though. Uh, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's been an incredible experience so far. Uh, but it's something that I strongly recommend if you're if you're if you're ready to move on from whatever career that you have in public safety and you still want to have some connection to your brothers and sisters in this in this uh, amazing line of work that we that we've been able to participate in. This is one way that you can do it and really uh, provide a level of assistance for your for your peers that you probably uh, did for the public. So I love that go challenge, Dan. A, go, go out and work in mental health, but do it for your do it for your own folks. And we are. We're gonna need a lot more of them. So that is a really good challenge, you know. And I know several people actually that are going through uh, you know, and achieving that right now, you know, whether they be a nurse going for their MP of psychology or firefighters that are going mm-hmm. after uh their counseling degrees. It is a challenge, but it is sorely, sorely needed. And it gives you an opportunity to, like you mentioned, you know, stay in contact with your community and really 
give back. You know, there's there's no higher calling than you know fulfilling your term of service and then turn around and helping others get to the finish line too. I would imagine, and and you know, I commend you for setting that example, Dan. And by all means, you know, please let me know. Uh, I'll definitely continue to follow your progress and support it any way I can because you know we do need more people out there and, and there is nobody coming in to save us and when you talk about these type of counselors um, there are a lot of first responder trauma counselors out there but they are they are not from the same cloth they are not us they did not serve uh, in service and so there still is a, a gap there and so it is sorely 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 needed so I really appreciate your time Dan your thoughts your insight this just critical conversation discussion that we had it's all been very enlightening and hopefully those of you out there you know the challenge is also it, it only takes one person to start this and get this going it doesn't take money it takes time energy and passion and you know, at least for me, uh, there's no higher calling than, than to be an impact and create an impact for your fellow first responder, your fellow partner, uh, your fellow firefighter, police officer, whatever it may be, your partner. Um, so with that, you know, thank you all. I want to appreciate our viewers for tuning in today for this episode of Critical Conversations podcast as we kind of broke down just peer support and some of the ideas behind it and how to set up within your agency and just some of the consideration points that you should have, whether you have a peer support program or you are looking into a peer support program or you're looking to develop one. I think you could all gain some valuable insights. Also, just be sure to go check out Dan. He's on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and just give to our dedicated listeners. Thank you again for joining us on this critical journey. Remember, the Critical Conversations podcast is a steadfast resource for police, fire, EMS, allied healthcare workers, dispatchers, air medical, and military personnel, along with their families. Your support makes the impact of these conversations resonate even further. If you found today's discussion enlightening and want to stay connected with our ongoing mission, please be sure to subscribe to the Critical Conversations podcast. You can find us via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and the Mind the Frontline website. Your subscription ensures that you will never miss an episode, and it's a powerful way to show your commitment to fostering resilience within the entire first responder community. For more information and additional resources, visit our website at www.mindthefrontline.org. Together, let's continue these critical conversations and build a stronger, more resilient first responder family. We thank you for being a part of the Critical Conversations podcast. Until next time, take care, stay strong, and mind the front line.